this is a, a great time of the year. And I mentioned that last week as we were together, kind of prior to the message. And the fact that one thing that makes it so great is the fact that the whole world, um, whether they recognize it or not, celebrates the birth of Jesus Christ. And I know that there are many roots to this holiday that we celebrate, but don't, don't be dismayed, don't be discouraged. This is a Christian holiday. It is not like the pagan holiday which was celebrated for centuries. It was actually claimed for Christianity. Uh, there's two Christian roots to uh, the celebration of Christian. One of them dates all the way back before the Reformation in, in the island of England where a, where a priest began to uh, erect a tree and light it with lights. And he, he said that Christ was the everlasting Father and that He was the light of the world. That's where you get your Christmas tree. That, that, that's the idea that was invoked in that day. And it was also claimed that the other route you might uh, go back to for the celebration of Christmas, even the decorations which we now decorate our homes and churches with, is Martin Luther, who is believed to have erected the first Christmas tree in mainland Europe. And he did that by putting up an evergreen and lighting it with candles and then preaching a message about Jesus as the light of the world. Right in this time of the season is when he did that. And so this season is a Christmas holiday. It is, it is a Christ-centered holiday. As much as the world may not enjoy the thought of that, and as much as they may try to commercialize it and change it, and in some ways they may be successful in doing that, anytime they say Christmas... They mention Christ. And so it's right for us to turn in our preaching and in our thoughts on these Sundays that lead up, this Sunday and next Sunday, to the birth of Jesus Christ, to the celebration of the true Christmas. And to do that, I want to go back to Isaiah chapter 9, 700 years before Jesus Christ was born. And a great prophecy was laid out by the prophet Isaiah and last year I preached this same uh, passage. I preached an overview in sorts of verses 1 through 7. Barry read that for you again this morning because I want to set what I'm going to say today in context where it belongs in this, in this uh, writing of Isaiah. But I want to focus in really on, on one or two phrases. They're found in verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. And that's the title of the message. A son is given. Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6. What is this prophecy that Isaiah is writing about? Well, I said it's about 700 years before Christ was born, roughly. And it, it really is set among not a happy day in the, in the camp of Israel. You know, we sang uh, one of the songs may mention to the happy morning of Christmas. Uh, well, the first Christmas morning was not happy for the people of Israel. Neither were, were, was the day of Isaiah's prophecy 700 years before Christ was born. Let's think about the setting. In Isaiah, if you're familiar with it, Isaiah was, a, was, a, was a, probably a cousin or some type of family member to even the royalty of Israel. He, we believe this because he had immediate access into the throne room of the king. He never was, had to be beckoned or called. He never had to wait uh, his turn. He just walked right before the king. We see that in Isaiah 7 verse 3. He walked right up to the king in that day. And he spoke with him face to face. This is very uncommon 
in the Middle East, even to this day, for someone to be granted that kind of access to the leader of a country, a nation. And so Isaiah is a very important man. He also had access to the priesthood, immediate access to the priesthood. So this is a powerful man, this prophet Isaiah, and he, he prophesied for many years. He's a contemporary of some other prophets, Micah being one. And he, he is prophesying really the ruin and then the rebuilding of Israel. And I, I just want to say here quickly that the ruin of Israel parallels the ruin of mankind. If you think back to what caused the ruin of mankind, it was pride. It was a desire to be equal with God. It was a desire to go around the system God had in, put in place for worship and for meeting with Him. That was Adam's desire and Eve's desire to be like God. It was pride. It was idolatry. And that's the downfall of Israel. If you look at Israel's downfall, their captivities and their conquerings, it all centers around the fact that they worship false gods. King Uzziah, who was ruling, in, and we see it in Isaiah 6, where, where um, Isaiah gets a vision of the throne room of heaven. Probably in the throne room of Israel gets this vision of the throne room of heaven. And standing before Uzziah, he begins to talk about the need for Israel to return, to be the messengers that they were intended to be when God had placed them on the earth as a nation. Isaiah is calling them to reform. Why did they need reform? Because Uzziah had erected a temple worship. In God's temple, he was now worshiping false gods. He had set up wooden idols in the place of the ark. And now he was worshiping. The, the law had been lost in a sense. And all of the nation of Israel was now bowing to these unknown gods or these idolatrous gods of the people that surrounded them, the Syrians and the Assyrians. Two of the most powerful groups of people in Isaiah's day were the Syrians and the Assyrians. Don't confuse them. It's two different groups of people. Syria desired to um, overtake Judah. And to do that, they formed an alliance, a loose alliance with, it, with Israel, the two northern tribes of the nation. So you had the, the southern tribes and you had two of the northern tribes aligning with, with, uh, with Syria. And to stop this overthrow of Judah and Jerusalem, the king, Ahaz, the king of Israel, or Judah, made an alliance with Assyria. Assyria was the most wicked of all the people of the earth. Now you say, how, how can you say that? They were known for their violence. Matter of fact, they enter into their conquered lands. They entered in and they raped the women immediately before the eyes of the captured and conquered men. Then they would take choice soldiers from the opposing army and they would impale them and place them in the middle of the city as a threat to all who would oppose their rule. And then they began to deport people from their homeland to demoralize them and confuse them and to begin to repatriate them into the Assyrian way of life. And when they took people away, they would bring people in to live in those cities that were now destroyed and being rebuilt. And so that's the, that's the description of the setting of Isaiah chapter 9. Israel, these two northern tribes of Israel have been conquered by Assyria. Galilee, Gilead, and the way of the sea is what it's called in verse 1 for you. The setting there is conquered people. Can you imagine the wailing and the weeping of the people of Israel as Isaiah is giving this prophecy? 
the destruction that has been brought on them because of their sin. Maybe, the, maybe even the repentance felt in their heart. But that's not really that different than when Jesus was born, is it? Think with me about Matthew chapter 1 and Luke chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 2. What happened to the people of Israel 700 years later, but that they're under the captivity of Rome now, a new ruler, same story, new ruler. They're oppressed. Their own king, Herod, is nothing but a puppet, a mouthpiece for Caesar. And when Jesus is born, what did He do? He sent hordes of soldiers into the city of Bethlehem and the surrounding area. And He slaughtered every child two years and under. Every male child two years and under was, was slaughtered, trampled, cut in two. The streets flowed with the blood of the children of the northern tribes of Israel in the day of Jesus also. And so, when we think about happiness in Christmas, that's not the setting for Isaiah's day, nor is it the setting for Jesus' own day. Weeping, wailing, death, destruction, captivity, sin, idolatry. That's the setting for the first Christmas. That's the world that Christ was born into. But if we stop and think, just for a moment as we're setting this stage to look at this text, what's the difference between that day and our day? What really is the difference? We're more civilized? Babies aren't now killed in the streets. They're killed in doctor's offices. By the thousands. What's really different about our day from Isaiah's day or from Christ's day when He was born? Idolatry, is that different? Well, it looks a little different, doesn't it? We no longer have wooden statues in our living rooms. We have our wallets. We have our bank accounts. We have our entertainment. We have our families. These are our idols. Really, are we that much different from the people in Israel or the people in Israel in Jesus' day? Is there really all that much difference other than we may be a little more civilized and nobody's impaled in our streets and no babies are sawn in two before our eyes, but behind white linen curtains in the comfort of a doctor's office? Now, we're no different than these men and women. We're idolaters. We're murderers. I'm not talking about bad people outside the church. I'm talking about us. And so Isaiah says in verse 6, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. Isaiah would have said the same thing had he lived in our day as he said 700 years before Christ, 2,700 years ago. The scene is unchanged. Idolatry, wickedness abounds. And there's much weeping and gnashing of teeth in a sense. Look at verse 6. For unto us 
a child is born. This is not a complicated message. It's very simple. If you're taking notes, you might write down, a child is born. There's no need to be creative here. Tons are said in this little phrase. A child is born. God promised Israel a child Messiah. Now, Israel quickly made Hezekiah the future king, the one who rules right after Ahaz. They make him the purpose of this writing. And they say, well, that's what Isaiah was prophesying, was Hezekiah who brought reformation and a time of revival to the people of Israel. That's what he must have meant. But if you look at the passage, that's really not possible that it meant Hezekiah. Look at what it says in verse 6. A child is born, a son is given, further description, and then what is his name? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Father of forever, the Prince of Peace. Hezekiah could not fulfill all of those names. He could not call himself the Everlasting Father or the Father of forever. He couldn't say that he was the Prince of Peace. No, this is not meant for Hezekiah. This is meant for 700 years later, a fulfillment which could only be done by the hand of God. And it's an old promise. This is not the first time God's promised that a child would come. Genesis 3, verse 15, as He curses the serpent there in the garden, He says that the son of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. A child was promised in the Garden of Eden. A child was promised. It's not the first nor the last nor the last prophecy of a son in Genesis chapter 3, is it? Because if you just go a little longer in Genesis and you get to Genesis chapter 12 and chapter 15 and chapter 22, as Aaron's been talking about, there was a promise made of a son then also. Not just, not just Isaac was promised, but the one who would bring a blessing to all nations was promised through the seed of Isaac. This isn't the first time when we get to Isaiah 9, 6 that the people of Israel have heard that a child is going to be born and that a son is going to be given. They've been hearing this prophecy since the Garden of Eden, since Abraham their father, since David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We find that David was promised a son. Listen to what God said in the covenant with David. I will be to him a father, verse 14, and he shall be to me a son, When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever, David. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. God made a promise to David that he would have a son who would sit on a throne that would be everlasting, eternal, and would never end. Isaiah 9-6 is not unique. It's the further revelation of what's been coming for centuries. If you look back, as a matter of fact, to Isaiah 7, since you don't have to turn very far, you can look back at Isaiah 7. Really, Isaiah has prophesied before 9 that there would be a son. Look in... uh, Isaiah 7, beginning in verse 13. Hear then, O house of David, 
Is it too, too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call His name Emmanuel. The son had been promised. He had been promised since the Garden of Eden. The child that would be born. And it was fulfilled. As I stand here today and as you sit there today, we sit post the birth of Christ and so we can say all of the promises are true and yes and amen in Christ, can't we? In Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7, and we won't read it for time's sake, the, the story is told. And how many people lost or saved from a Christian culture, a culture with some Christian moorings, let's put it that way, sit around their Christmas tree on Christmas Eve and read this story. They may not have been to church ever, some of them. Or they may not go but once a year or twice a year. But they read this story, Luke chapter 2, when the child is born and wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. I tell you, Isaiah 9, 6, a child is born unto us is the fulfillment or is the further prophecy of what God had been saying since the Garden of Eden. The message never changed. A son's going to be born to you, Eve, and he's going to crush this evil serpent. Abraham, I took you from your fathers to give you a son who will be a blessing to all the nations. And now that you've shown me that you offer your own son Isaac, I tell you I'll make for myself an offering on this mountain, and it'll please me. It'll satisfy me. David, you failed. You're a man of war. You cannot build me a house. But I'll build a house and I'll put kings in it. And that line, your line, will never cease because you'll have a son and he'll rule forever and ever. And then in Isaiah, he says a virgin will give birth. And that's what Luke tells us happened. Mary, the virgin, was with child. And he would be born in Bethlehem, Micah says, and he was. And kings would come and bow before him, and they did. And so we sit past the birth of Christ saying, this is a marvelous thing that a child is born. What does this mean? Well, his birth signals his humanity. The key to this first phrase is it's dealing with the humanity of Christ. A child is born. Not unlike any other child that's ever been born in the world. Right? His mother carried him in the womb. She gave birth to him like all other mothers did. He came out probably crying, red-faced, cold, needing to be warmed and loved and given food. Just like every other child who's ever walked the face of the earth. This verse, in verse 9, the first part in 6a says, He was human. He was human. But let's not make a mistake. We're going to get there. But He's not just human. That's the best way to say it. He was human, but He's not only human. That's not all He was. Isaiah really is giving us half of the equation. He's saying a child is born. And He wasn't born way out there, was He? Look at the intimacy that Isaiah speaks of. Unto us, a child is born. People came from all over the world 
to their home cities. Bethlehem was overflowing. There weren't room in the inn for Mary and Joseph because there were so many people in Bethlehem. And right there among them was born this child. Most of them didn't recognize it. Most of them never paid it any attention. It didn't get front news on the headlines. It was an afterthought. But he was intimately born with humans right here among us. He's human. He's intimate with us. Through his humanity, he comes close to us. The transcendent God comes close to us. But his birth does not win for us freedom. The end of the story, if the end of the story was a manger in Bethlehem, we would have no joy. Isaiah says there will be joy and gladness where there is right now mourning and weeping. But I'm telling you, that couldn't be true if he had stayed a baby. If he had lived a life without just looking at his birth doesn't bring us freedom. I want us to look back just for a moment at the, at the context leading to verse 6 and then we'll go to the second phrase and we'll look at it at the other half of what's said in this verse. Look at the words there in verse 9, in nine chapter 1, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. <clears throat> but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. Anguish. The word expressed there is really unexpressible. The moving of the gut. They're in deep anguish. Where will this happen? In Naphtali. Zebulun. Known as Galilee of the Gentiles. You realize that in Matthew chapter 4. Verse 16 through 18, this is fulfilled. Jesus, hearing that John was across the Jordan, withdrew to Galilee so that the Scripture might be fulfilled, which said, which Isaiah wrote or said, that he would come through Zebulun, Naphtali, and Galilee of the Gentiles. Galilee was a byword among the people of Israel. They hated the place. It was full of Gentiles. And yet that's where Jesus set up camp to begin his ministry. That's where he did his first ministry. And I think it speaks to us. Christmas is not a Jewish holiday. Christmas is the, is, is the Gentile holiday. It's the holiday of Jews and Gentiles of the people of God. He came through Naphtali. Galilee of the Gentiles. What was Galilee in that day? In Isaiah's day, it was full of darkness. It was a land of deep darkness. It was a land of oppression. It was a land that I've described to you in the introduction to this message. Full of death and destruction. Conquering armies. Deported people. Dead babies. Crucified men. That's the world of Galilee in the day of Isaiah. And it's that world that he said the child would be born into. Into that destruction, into that darkness. That's the setting. And as we move down through the passage, we come to 
the promise of a child. It seems so out of place. A child. For this situation, you've got to be kidding me, God. You're sending a child to do a man's work? If you had been any other child, you might could say that. But look at what verse 6 says. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. God not only promised Israel a child Messiah, but He promised Israel that He would send His Son. Psalm chapter 2 says, On that day I call Him my Son, and He will be seated on the throne, and he, kings will come to worship Him. David spoke of the Messiah, we're told, when he saw that vision of the king, the son king seated on the throne of Israel. And God promised this son. He promised the son and he kept his promise. In John 1, 14 through 18, we see that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace and truth. That's what we have in Christ. This son, this baby that was born, we have a promise that's kept. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 23, the Bible says that his name shall be called Emmanuel. God is with us. And God did come to be with us. Possibly the greatest uh, fulfillment or statement of the fulfillment of this Prophecy is in Philippians 2, 5 through 7 when Paul says that he came down, he descended, he stepped away from the glory of heaven and he made himself into the image of a man, even the humble servant that he was, even to the death of a cross. The greatest statement of how the child came The son was given really probably is in Paul's words there in Philippians chapter 2. As we see that the child was born and the son was given or granted. You see, the son was not born. That would be incorrect. Jesus is eternal. Had Isaiah said, Isaiah could not say, a son is born. He couldn't say that. He had to say he's given. And it matches John's words in John 3, verse 16, when he says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He gave His Son. Not that His Son was born. It matches the words of John chapter 1, verse 14, when John says, The Word became flesh. The Word existed. It wasn't born and dwelt among us. The humanity of Christ contained in that first phrase, The child is born. The divinity of Christ, the deity of Christ given us in the second part, a son is given. And so you say, so what of it? These people were sad, they were broken, they were idolaters, they deserved judgment, they got a son. So what? So what about me? I figured you might ask that. So I want to answer. This isn't just any son. This is the son who saves. He not just saves in general. He saves his people. Look in verse 6. 
For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. If you look back up on verse 4, it says, The staff and the yoke of burden are broken, like the day of Midian. Israel is being promised a great deliverance in verse 6. Look, look, look at this. In verse 4, God says it's going to be like the day of Midian. Now, what, what is that? Gideon, don't get that confused. Gideon conquered the Midianites. But how did he do it? Big army, lots of strength, outflanked them, divide and conquer, great military strategy. No. Gideon conquered the Midianites, the greatest army in his day, by placing candles or torches in pots, dividing a few hundred men on the hillsides and blowing some trumpets. When they blew the trumpets, the pots burst and the lights broke out and the Midianites woke from their sleep seeing the camp surrounded by these Thousands of soldiers, they believed. They ran in confusion and killed themselves. Gideon didn't even carry a sword into the battle. Neither did his men. They carried a torch and a pot and a trumpet. And God conquered the greatest force in their day. It's no mistake that Isaiah says, like in the day of the Midianites. Because see, the world says, you're going to send a child, a baby, even a son, into the teeth of this line, this oppressor. Whether it's Assyria or Rome or the oppression of our day, that's what you're going to do. You're going to send a baby, that's going to solve the problem. See, God doesn't use conventional plans, conventional wisdom. It wasn't conventional wisdom to send Gideon out there with a few hundred men and some pots and a torch. And a trumpet. That wasn't conventional wisdom. That's not how they fought wars in their day. And yet God conquered the greatest army of that day in that unconventional way. And He says, the same is true of this son that's coming. The enemy will be so confused, it will fall on its own sword. That's the implication. How can that be true? Well, I want to say it's true because when Jesus was placed on a cross, Satan... And evil believed they had won a great victory. He's dead. We've done away with him. We've banished him. The people are still oppressed. The people are still in sin. There's no deliverance. The promised one has failed. Only to see in three days the light, that great torch, come forth from the grave. Conquering sin and death. And so unconventionally God has conquered sin and Satan and death through this Son. He has done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. Israel increases, the Bible says, in verse 7. Look there at that verse quickly. Of the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. You need to underline that. 
on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. You need to underline that. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You need to put brackets around that statement, underline it. There's only three times in the Old Testament that God makes that statement. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. You say, what does this message have to do with me? I don't live in Zebulun, Naphtali, Galilee. I'm not in Isaiah's day or Jesus' day. I'm in the 21st century, man. Tell me how Christmas matters to me other than Santa Claus and some toys. Let me tell you, it's contained in this verse. It says, the increase of His government and of peace, there will be no end. Really? No end. How can that be true? David is not on the throne, neither is his son. You sure about that? Because my Bible says in Acts chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says in verse 37, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What did they heard? Well, the whole message of Peter at Pentecost was that the Lord Jesus Christ was on the throne. The one who you crucified now rules and reigns forevermore. And their response was they were cut to the heart and they said, what should we do then? He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. That's Peter's way of talking about us, the Gentiles. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. What is this whole message about a son and a child and an ancient days, 2,700 years ago, got to do with me. This son is salvation for everyone who God calls. I tell you, this child that was born in Bethlehem no longer is in a manger. He's on the throne of heaven. His kingdom is not coming. It has come. He's not going to save Israel. He has saved Israel. By His own blood, He saved her. And your response and my response should be no different than what Peter told them to respond. Repent and believe. That should be our response. Gentiles, non-Jews in this room, Christmas is all about us being made part of the promise through Jesus. We would have no right to the promises if it were not for Christ. We would have no hope of eternity if it were not for Christ. We would have no... Because we have no national claim to God's promises in the Old Testament. We are not physical Israel. And yet we have hope Because as Peter said, the promise is not just for you and for your children, Israel. The promise 
is for all those that are afar off who God calls. That's Christmas. More than a baby in a manger, Christmas is about you and me receiving the blessings through Christ that belonged to God's people. And they belong to us. And so when we sit down around the, thanks, the, the table to give thanks this Christmas, more than anything else, we should say, thank Him for the child that was born and the son that was given so that we might inherit the kingdom. It's interesting to me, the first message Jesus publicly preached in Galilee. Interesting. Very short. He said, Repent and believe, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Somehow we've gotten confused waiting on something that's going to initiate in the future. And I'm saying the kingdom of God was initiated with Christ. It's now that we are being drawn from afar by Christ, this child, this son. Let's pray. Father, these are, could be nothing but academic, heady things.